Hey, it's Michael Fabiano now with Sports Illustrated, and I'm here to help you through this wild fantasy football season. To win in fantasy, you need player rankings you can trust, and ours have received the top five accuracy award over the last three seasons. Sign up for the all-new SI Fantasy Plus at si.com slash fantasy. We even have tools that sync with your leagues and experts who are standing by answering your questions in our premium chat. Sign up for SI Fantasy Plus at si.com slash fantasy and win your leagues in 2020. That's si.com slash fantasy. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 451 42 I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206 246- 842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Cracking Podcastville, you found the Bystander Podcast. Today joining me is the political correspondent of the show, Joel Underwood. Welcome back, Joel. Hey, always good to be here. Thanks, Tim. And a man who is an author, speaker, and a friend in my neighborhood. I feel like the Mr. Rogers of podcasting right here. This is a guy you may meet in your neighborhood, John Perkins. How are you, John? Great. It's great to be. It's wonderful to be with both of you, Timothy and Joel. Awesome. And John has been kind enough to hang out with his cat, Jaggy, who um, brings me to the first introduction that uh, John has a new book out, Touching the Jaguar. What number book is this in the, I don't know, how would you say it? Not trilogy, but um, how many books have you written? 
This is the 10th published. I've written more than I've published, so some I never tried to publish, but yeah, this is the 10th. Um, so the, yeah, actually the trilogy, the third in the trilogy of the Economic Hitman trilogy is being written right now. I'm working on that now, but this one, Touching the Jaguar, which I, and actually I love, really like the subtitle, which is Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life in the World. But that is one that brings together the two genres that the other book. So I got, I have five books on indigenous cultures and shamanism, things like shape-shifting and the world is as you dream it. And then four books on global economics, two directly Confessions of an Economic Hitman and the new Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And then this one, Touching the Jaguar, which I wrote to bring those two genres together, to bridge them. Because for me, mm. it was always a very strong connection. But for most people, it was like, you know, I would speak at international economic forums and places and people would say, you're not the same guy that wrote those woo-woo books on shamanism, are you? And then I'd speak at, you know, New <laughs> Age or shamanic or woo-woo organizations. <laughs> you can't possibly be the guy that wrote those nasty books on economic hitmen, are you? And for me, there was always this complete relationship, which I can get into, but um, it, was never, it was never expressed. It was never overt. And so this book is a, is a way of making that, bringing that out into the public light. So when, did, when did you start writing? Because your background's very diverse. You've done enough to fill a lifetime a few times over. When did um, writing really yeah. catch on with you? Well, I, I've written all my life. I love to write. Yeah. It's always been a hobby, but I never tried to get published until about 1987, 88, 89, and there. That's when the first book called The Stress-Free Habit was published. And uh, so I was born in 45, so you can figure it out. Fairly pretty late in life that I, but I'd been writing. I love to write. I wrote short stories. Whenever I traveled, I wrote. For me, writing is, is therapeutic. It's my form of meditation, yoga. You know, mm -hmm. I jog in the beautiful woods around where, where you and I live uh, here on Bainbridge Island just about every day, a couple of miles. Wow. Uh, swim, or swim in the public swimming pool, indoors, uh, social distance pool. So I, so I exercise, but my, you know, but my real juices get flowing and the relaxation comes from writing. I love to write. So did that uh, include journaling and doing a diary as a kid at all? Not really, but as a kid, I started very, very young writing stories. I actually started before I could, could really write. I, I did stick figure cartoons. I was an only child, and uh, I, uh, my dad and mom were teachers, and they had about three months off every summer, which we spent at a cottage we had in New Hampshire on the, in the woods on a lake. There were no other people around and no kids around. So my parents had their own projects of gardening and doing various painting and so on. So I was left pretty much to my own self. And at a very young age, I started talking to trees. They were my friends. You know, I played, you know, I loved King Arthur, the tales of King Arthur and Robin Hood. And the trees were the, the you know, the Knights of the Round Table, Maid Marian and the Merry Men and so on and so forth. I didn't realize I was practicing shamanism before I ever even heard the word. But on rainy days, which we had a few in the summer in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. I was stuck in this little tiny cottage. And so I would create my own 
stories. I would create a life for myself using, at the beginning, stick figures, cartoons. It's just, you know, it's very simple. And then as, as I developed, I started writing short stories. And I wrote the first novel when I was in uh, fifth grade. Um, but these were ways of basically wow. creating a life for myself when, when there was no life to be had during those summer rainy days. It's awesome. Um, I get teased a lot because for people that don't know, there's 400 plus acres called the Grand Forest here. It's just beautiful public park um, trails and such. But when I have friends from out of town come come by, the running joke seems to be, enjoy yourself in Sher- Sherwood Forest. Back to the Robin <laughs> yeah. Hood days. Yeah, well, Grand Forest, Gasm Lake, uh, Fort Ward, all those areas, beautiful forest. In fact, the other day I was I was jogging in uh, – uh, up uh, on the hill up above Fort Ward and, and saw a big, big, big cat, much bigger than Jaggy, a bobcat, a uh, wild bobcat up there. And, uh, you know, we've got some bears on the island and, and, and lots of uh, uh, lots of interesting wildlife. Lots Coyotes, of, deers. Uh, yeah, yesterday, today, two days ago, a big, big horned owl I saw on a tree right near the path it's 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 marvelous yeah it really is wonderful <laughs> you don't want to cross those owls for whatever reason they're vindictive i keep hearing that but you know i go i spent my life in forests and i've never been attacked by an owl you know i talk to them oh, very but, good but uh and they talk back but I've never been attacked by one. So I don't know about these stories of people being attacked by owls. I got to wonder what those people are doing. I don't know. But, uh, uh, maybe you know. it's the fear conspiracy theorist that uh, put up the signs that are selling fear. Let's talk about that a little bit. It's, you know, we're inundated. You, you come from a, a simpler time I've spent time practicing um, with a shaman and being in third world countries and detached from all this stuff. And, now your grandson and my son are growing up in a very tech-heavy instant gratification, peppered with news, biased news. Um, where are we? Where's the end to this, and how do we change it around? Because there's so much misinformation and confirmation bias. You know, is there a solution other than just throwing away our phones and getting off the computer and iPads and such? Yeah, you know, I think uh, the, the whole, the concept of touching the Jaguar comes from the Schwa people who, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in 1970, excuse me, 1968 to 1970, beginning of 1971. And I spent much of that time deep in the Amazon rainforest with the Schwa people. And at one point, um, I was dying deep in the rainforest. I, I couldn't keep any food down. I was, I, I, I was, I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I couldn't stand up without help. And the nearest medical facility was three days away, including extremely difficult hiking through forests and then taking a rickety old bus up 10,000 feet into the Andes. There was no way I could do that. And uh, one night a, a Shwa shaman offered to cure me. Now I got to tell you, I just graduated from business school. I'd never heard of a shaman, uh, but he was, and, and he was very scary looking, all this, these tattoos on his face. And he was, you know, he was a, he was a Shwa hunters and gatherers at the time, and they were actually involved in some warfare. Um, but it was the only offer that I had. 
So I took it. And that night, uh, he took me on a, what's called a shamanic journey uh, into an altered state. And I had my eyes closed and, and uh, I saw this amorphous form in front of me. And the shaman says to me, touch the jaguar. Well, it's nighttime and I'm in the middle of the jungle and I open my eyes and I look around and like, where's the jaguar? <laughs> God help us, you know? And the, the shaman says, no, 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 close your eyes, see the jaguar and touch it. So I did, I closed my eyes and this amorphous form shape-shifted into a jaguar's face. And I heard this voice, like my mother's voice, saying, son, the food and drink will kill you. And I realized at that moment that I was eating some very strange foods. Uh, so, you know, I grew up in rural New Hampshire. I grew up in New Hampshire. And, and in those days, we had very bland foods, <laughs> nothing very exciting. And in the, the schwa were eating things like a delicacy as you take squirming white grubs out of a rotting log and down the hatch. You know, it's and, and and people in the Amazon don't drink water because they know that the rivers are filled with organic matter. They're dangerous. They're tr falling trees, dead animals. So the women make a kind of a beer called chicha by chewing the manioc root and spitting it. And it, it sets up this fermentation process, alcohol. And then you can add water to it. Spit beer. And you got to rehydrate a lot in the Amazon. So I'm drinking a lot of spit beer because there wasn't any Perrier. And I'm eating a lot of squirming <laughs> grubs and worse because there weren't any cliff bars. And that night on that shamanic journey, I saw that every time I ate these things or drank the spit beer, a voice would say, it's killing you. At the same time, I saw how incredibly robust and healthy the schwa were. You know, these are hunters and gatherers. The men kill big boars, wild pigs in the forest and carry them out on their shoulders. They got legs that would make a, a soccer star jealous. Um, <laughs> the women, I was in my early 20s, the women were looking very good. Uh, and people live to be very, very old if they're not killed in a hunting accident or dug out canoe tipping over or something. And so that night I saw that it wasn't the food and drink that was killing me. It was my perception, my mindset. And the shaman then, I, I, the, the next day I was much better. And a few days later I was recovered. And, and the shaman required as payment that I become his apprentice. Well, again, you know, 1969, graduate from business school, no future in shamanism in those days. But the guy had saved my life. And so I did. And the first thing he taught me was touching the jaguar. He said it means... Uh, confronting our fears. We, we don't run from what we fear. We, we reach out and we touch it. And when you touch your fears, uh, you're given a gift that helps you change your perceptions and turn your fears into perceptions that'll help you break down the blockages that are holding you back. Change your mindset, and then you change the actions. Uh, and so, you know, and here, here I've got this Jaguar here that I like to touch and I got this Jaguar here to touch, this Jaguar over here, I'm surrounded by Jaguars here. Uh, but so this whole idea of touching the Jaguar is about confronting our fears and facing them and touching them rather than running away from them. So, you know, I think this, this coronavirus is teaching us something that I think we knew to begin with. And that is that we, human beings, we're living on a tiny, fragile space station, the Earth, and we're the pilots. 
we control the destiny of the space station. And we've recently been piling it toward disaster. Uh, more and more earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, fires, massive hurricanes, fires, uh, polar ice caps melting, and so on and so forth. Once in 100 year events happening every year or mm -hmm. so. And we've been ignoring that. Well, we've, we've seen it as local. But these are warnings. These are warnings that we're, that we're doing something to destroy life as we know it on this planet. And we've looked at these as local events. So if, if, if we survive an earthquake or fire or hurricane, we expect that within a few days or maybe a couple of weeks, the outside world will come to our help. Bottle yeah. water, food will arrive. Well, the pandemic has taught us that there is no outside world. We're it. And so this fear that we haven't touched, that we haven't, that we've run away from, the, 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 which is the knowledge that we must change. We fear change, but we must change. We've created what's called a death economy by many economists, an economic system that's destroying itself. And we've been running from that. Now we have to touch it. And when we touch it, we change our perception. We realize that this economic system is driven by a perception that corporations must maximize short-term profits and individuals maximize materialistic consumption, regardless of the social and environmental costs. And that's a terrible perception to have, but it's been the driving perception. It's like my perception that the food and drink would kill me. It's been driving us and it's driving us toward failure. So it's time to touch that perception. And when we do touch that Jaguar, when we do, we realize that we need to change the perception. And the new perception is that, that our businesses, our lives should be driven by maximizing long-term benefits for people, cats, the environment, the natural for everything, maximize long-term perceptions. And in fact, Timothy, when you come right down to it, it's, you know, that's, that's been the driving force for humanity during most of our history. 250,000 years that we've been on this planet as humans as we know ourselves, we've, we've always protected our children and our grandchildren. We've, we've had policies like the indigenous people do, like the Shwa did when I lived with them, of, of passing on to future generations as good a world as, as we've inhabited or inherited or better. And this is the first time in human history that we know, I know my generation is passing on a much more difficult and, and troubling world to, to, my, to my daughter and my grandson uh, than the one that I received. And, you know, we, we, we must confront this and we must uh, touch it. And once we do, once we do, we begin to get the power and the creativity and whatever is needed to turn that around. So it's an exciting time, but it is a time for us to touch our fears to confront our blockages. Yeah, I was in therapy a while back. Well, I still am, but there was a poster on the on the wall, and I was struggling with this therapist at the time. But it was a cooperative therapist room, so different therapists used it at different times. And it said, um, "Don't turn away from your fears, but turn towards them." And I think you mm -hmm. summarized that. And that day was the day that I fired that therapist. Because they said, oh, it's just a stupid poster this other therapist put up on the wall. It's not mine. And I was just like, okay, that's the signal right there. Good Can move. You... <laughs> yeah, it really was. Um, because not every therapist is a match for everybody. But I would also want to say, you know, we're talking about mental illness this last month. 
And um, if you're struggling with COVID and what's going on, you know, there's a lot of free therapy out there and uh, I highly suggest it for anybody that's struggling. Uh, alcoholism, suicide, lack of social connection, they're all driving factors to not being the best you that you can be. Um, yeah. My next yeah. question would be, where did the death economy originate from? Well, it, it it's, uh, uh, let me just comment for a second on what you just said. I, Absolutely. I just, I, you know, I think the pandemic has also allowed us to to, to touch a Jaguar that, and I've talked to a lot of people about this. <laughs> yes, people you have. <laughs> call me that, you know, saying I, I can't handle another week, you know, of the self-isolation, forget about another month or however long it's going to be. I just can't handle it. And, and I'll say to them, well, touch that Jaguar, you know, but, and don't you, did you tell me that you always wanted to learn to play the flute and you've got a flute and you've got yeah, the internet, you can learn to play the flute on the internet. Or didn't you tell me you always wanted to read more books or you wanted to write a book? Well, this is your opportunity. So I think that's, again, it's, it's this perception. How do we change our perception? And you mentioned psychotherapy. You know, I, one of the things I soon discovered as I started working with this shaman at first, it was like, well, wait a minute. He said, everything drives perception. I'm like, well, wait a minute, can that be? And then I realized that really, when you come right down to it, there's no United States. There's no Latin America, there's no corporations, there's no culture, there's no religion, except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, mm -hmm. it impacts reality. And that's what he said, our perceptions drive our reality. And that's the basis for modern psychotherapy. It's the basis for quantum physics. It's the basis for marketing, for corporate policy. Change perceptions, you, you change people's reality. Yeah. So Very well said. Well, John, I, I actually wanted to ask about that because I, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about all these things in terms of of politics and perception and kind of how they come together and your perception creating your reality. Over the last, uh, what, three, four hundred years as human beings, we seem to have fallen in love with the perception of the nation state and seeing ourselves as Americans or Russians or French or German. And yet now we seem to be moving into a world where that doesn't really work anymore. I mean, we just had this summer of California wildfires and West Coast wildfires that our Canadian friends noticed that smoke just refused to stop at the Canadian border. It, it didn't. You know, when we pollute, we pollute everybody. And and Corona is is and COVID is showing us that one one country's problem very quickly becomes everybody's problem. And I guess the question that begs is, all these problems that we want to solve, have we moved into a time in human history where we're going to have to get past the idea of the nation state as the dominant identifier that we kind of have to stop? And this is going to be really hard thinking of ourselves as Americans first or Canadians first or French first or whatever first, if we're going to actually tackle and touch any of these jaguars and deal with any of this big stuff. Yeah, I, I think you, you you had a very important point, Joel. Um, and it, when you come right down to it, uh, these days, we don't even think of ourselves as Americans, do we? I think we think of ourselves as Democrats or Republicans or yeah. something along those lines. I mean, we've seen that this is coming to a, a, a crisis point now. Um, I think there's a consciousness revolution sweeping the world. 
you know, up until the virus hit, I I had the I was blessed to have the opportunity for the last many years since Confessions, the Economic Hitman came out in 2004 to travel around the world, speaking at venues at all different sorts of venues, big economic conferences in Russia and Kazakhstan and rock festivals in the Czech Republic and all kinds of things, you know, and everywhere I go, I would see that uh, people are waking up to the fact that we must change. They're waking up to, you know, the glaciers are melting. (laughs) They're waking up to this and, and their desire to change it. And there's this consciousness revolution. In the United States, we saw the, the advent of B corporations and benefit corporations and the green mm. deal and conscious capitalism and on and on. There's so many signs. But whenever there's a revolution, there's a pushback by those in control, by the status quo. There's, that's always, always the case. And so that's certainly happening now and it's part of this division between republicans and democrats creating this fear on both parts oh my god i'm a democrat i'm scared to death of these republicans oh i'm a republican i'm scared to death of these democrats and or i'm you know if you if you can't go that far i'm an american or all americans were were, were terrified of, of the immigrants or the muslims or the russians or the chinese or somebody and those are all perceptions when we come right down to it we're we're, we're, we're just human beings living in a very fragile space station. And it's truly time for us to, to wake up for this, to this. And, you know, I, again, I take, I take hope from Amazonian people. So when I was a Peace Corps volunteer there in the 70s, in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, and I go back every year. I've been going back ever since. I, I, w- I would have been there this last August, except for the virus. Um, in the in back in the era, back when I was first going there, all the various tribes, which are now legally nations, the the, the Shwa, the Achwa, the Quechua, the Warani, they were all fighting each other. There was there were constant battles. It wasn't really wars; it was battles, and they were really territorial because these are hunters and gatherers who need large territories. And so, if somebody starts to encroach on your territory, you got to keep them out. So they saw their neighbors as their enemies. And then in the late 1960s, the oil companies came in, Texaco came in. And suddenly, and it started destroying huge, vast areas of the Amazon. And suddenly these, these, these indigenous people realized that their neighbors weren't their enemies. The oil companies were their enemies. And they had to come together. They had to change the perception. And they had to turn their fears around. What, they had to touch the jaguar that said that their neighbors were their enemies. They said, no, we're all in this together. And so they, they came together, formed federations that would physically try to stop oil companies. And also they, they, they were smart enough to start hiring lawyers and other people to do it on that level. And then they realized that it wasn't even the oil companies that were their enemies. It was the, the perception of the modern world. The dream of the modern world, they, they like the word dream, mm-hmm. perception to them, uh, that, that demands oil and other minerals that are ripped from the earth. And so that's when they, they came to me and, and after I'd been through the whole experience and asked me if I could form some organizations to help them change the dream of the modern world. And I did. I created a nonprofit called Dream Change and Pachamama Alliance. And incidentally, Pachamama Alliance next Friday has a huge program. We're expecting 8,000 people to participate. Um, If you go to pachamama.org, you can join us. 
um, or go to my website, johnperkins.org, and you can see it. But um, so this change of perception, and then they said, so we need to work, we're asking to partner with you to help change the perception of the modern world so that it no longer has this need for the things that are destroying the planet. And so getting back to, 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 getting back to what Timothy asked earlier too, that we, we created this death economy that's based on maximizing short-term profits and it's destroying the planet. And we change that perception, we create what we call a life economy, which is an economic system that's that's always been kind of typical of indigenous people and all of our ancestors, we all come from indigenous people, which is an economy that would will pay people to clean up pollution, uh, to mine all the, the oil that's leaked in every oil station around the world and, and all the oil drilling sites and the plastic in the oceans, mine it, recycle it to fill in, to, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to create new technologies that don't ravage the earth. And we're, we're well on the way to doing that, actually. We just need to emphasize that that is the goal of everyone, is to, to benefit the long term, pay people, pay investors decent rates of return who invest in these things. But it's not looking at the daily stock market. And it's not even looking at the quarterly report or the annual report. It's looking at what are we doing for the long term? China, in fact, is doing this. That has 30-year plans. And I'm not trying to defend the Chinese approach to any of this at all. But I am saying that we human beings have a history of looking at the long term. And back to, to what you asked, Joel, this has been developing for several hundred years, as, as, as you said, Joel, and back to the question that, that Timothy asked, this has been developing for several hundred years, but it really, really took off. This idea really, really took off in one particular moment, 1976, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics. And, you know, Friedman grew up in a different time, so we can't be, we don't want to be too harsh on him, but he said some important things, but probably the most important thing he said was the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profit for a few very rich individuals, incidentally, regardless of the social and environmental costs. He said, if we, if we maximize short-term profits, all the other problems will take care of themselves. That was BS, totally. And he wasn't the first to say it. Don Heineken had won the Nobel Prize a few years before and said something similar. But Friedman had the ear of Reagan and Thatcher and, and leaders around the world in Chile, all over. And, and this became a huge statement and it's been the driving force, overt driving force behind business schools and everything else that runs business ever since. So there was that one moment and it had been building up. And so now here we are in another moment and it's been building since the sixties, even since the, you know, the hippie movement and so on that we, we need to get away from materialism. But I think now we're really being struck that this, this virus is showing us that our system is just plain not working. We've seen when, when industrialization, when, when, industri when industries slow down in China, suddenly the satellites show us that the air has cleaned. And they've shown us this in Southern California in many places. Wow, um, I, just, I just talked on and on. Sorry about that. <laughs> we became the most polluted air there for the, a while based on the fires recently. Yeah. And we always think that the Chinese have been walking around with masks and, and being the biggest earth polluter for a long time. But we're also sending out our supply chains to the, those manufacturers in China 
that are producing that. Right, it's um, all interlinked now. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. for some, for some, they're they're left out of the link as well. Yeah. Um, I have to get this question out because um, I know we're a little bit limited, and this is <clears throat> the two questions that mean the most to me. Um, where were you? These are assassination questions. <laughs> I'm not asking where you were when somebody got killed uh, and did you do it. Rather, where were you when you found out when Bin Laden was assassinated and that your book was on his shelf? And how did that make you feel? Well, um, I don't remember exactly where he was at the moment he was assassinated because I, I think I might have been in the Amazon. Um, that sweet but, disconnection. I love it. <laughs> but um, which is also where I was on 9 11, uh, deep in the Amazon. Uh, and, but that his book was on my shelf. You know, it's funny because some people, including my partner, the woman I live with, um, who's a lawyer, criticized me for this. I, said, Can you, I can't believe it. And, I, and I'm like, well, I've also been told that, that Obama read my book. I don't know. I haven't heard that directly from him. But I know a lot of, you know, my, my the book was also the, one of the top 10 bestsellers on the um, World Bank bookshelf for a number of years, which mm. was surprising to me. And I don't know which is which is worse <laughs> or which is better. But uh, I was always, I'm always glad to know that the book is being widely read. So if uh, if Osama was was reading the book, um, I don't know. Maybe that was I'm, I'm you know. I, Do you feel feel like that gave him? No, I have no control over it anyway. Right, right. Do you feel like it gave him any type of blueprint to anything that he did? No, I, I can't. I can't believe it did that because I don't think there's much of a blueprint in the book. Um, it it may have reinforced some of his already thinking, beliefs. Yeah, some of his, but I think he was he was very savvy to what was going on in the world anyway. After all, he came from one of the most powerful families in Saudi Arabia. I suspect he found the part that I, where I wrote about Saudi Arabia very interesting and where I wrote about the role of the, of the House of Saud, the royal family, in, in shaping all of these things and which really the deal that we struck that I was involved in, in putting through with the House of Saud back in the early to mid 70s uh, has had a huge impact on the world ever since. We still, because of that deal that we struck, which committed us to protecting the House of Saud and keeping them in power as long as they allowed us to get their oil for a reasonable cost. And as long as they reinvested their, as long as they only bought and sold oil for US dollars and reinvested a lot of that money into US savings bonds, we, we struck this deal, we would protect them and keep them in power. And we've done that despite Kosoji, despite what we know about the royal family, that they're dictators, they're despots, they can be very brutal, they can be murderers. We know all these things and yet we've kept them in power. So I suspect reading about how that deal was put together was pretty interesting for uh, Ben Loudon, assuming he actually read the book. You know, I, have I heard it was I heard it was an autographed copy. What? I heard it was an autographed copy. Is that right? 
<laughs> I certainly did an autograph it to him. He may have, he may have bought an autographed copy on uh, over the internet or something. I don't know, but it was an autograph to him. Might have been autographed to you, Timothy. <laughs> I'm not that powerful. It's just me and my mom listen to this. That's about it. Um, you have been on and around banking systems, economies, um, kind of leveraging U.S. interest and have seen much more than I can ever imagine. What led up to the assassination attempt on yourself? Well, um, which one? Uh, there were a couple, but <laughs> you're probably referring to the, you're referring to the poisoning. time when I, the poisoning. Okay. So three months, a little less than three months after Confessions was published, I was invited to speak at the United Nations in New York. And that was on a Tuesday. I was supposed to speak on Tuesday. I flew up on Monday. Now I was in great shape. I was, I've been a martial artist most of my life, a black belt. On Friday, I'd sparred with an 18-year-old black belt and held my own, you know. I was, and I hadn't gotten kicked. I was, I was in good shape. Uh, and uh, we'd resisted. My, my publicist who organized all these things uh, had resisted a, a, a emails that he, she'd received from this fellow who claimed to be a, a freelance journalist wanted to interview me, and but didn't have much credentials, didn't have a lot of proof, but he was pretty persistent. And finally, just before I got on the plane, he'd sent her an email saying, look, I can pick John up in a, at the airport in a really nice car and take him out to lunch and drop him off at his friend's house where he's spending the night. And it'll be much more relaxing than him having to find a cab. I'll meet him with a sign and, and so on. And so she, she recommended and I agreed. And he did that. And he took me to lunch. And during after we had the food was on the table, I was in the restroom. So he had a great opportunity there to poison me, if you will. Uh, a few hours later, I'm in my friend's apartment uh, and, and I get stricken extremely badly. I lost more than 70 percent uh, of, uh, of the blood in my body and immediately called a friend. My, my, the person I was staying with was a producer at, at Tom Brokaw's at NBC News and she had a good friend who was a very well-known cardiologist, called him at home at 7.30 at night. And he said, you're going to be dead within a couple of hours. You get in a cab. Don't even wait for an ambulance in the city. Get in a cab. I'll call ahead to Lenox Hill Hospital. You need transfusions. Uh, and that's what we did. And I get to the hospital and make a long story short, they ended up removing 70% of my large intestine. And, you know, everything happened very quickly. I was totally out of it. It wasn't until after the operation that I started getting emails and phone calls and other messages and Pachamama Alliance and Dream Change got them saying, don't you know he was poisoned? It never occurred. I mean, didn't even, I wasn't thinking about that. Nobody was. So I talked to my, um, to the end, to the, uh, did I say cardiologist before? I wasn't a, it was a, uh, what do you call that? A, a guts guy. Anyway, I talked to him. Uh, and uh, he said, well, yeah, it's entirely possible. But he said, unfortunately, we've incinerated the evidence, which is our protocol here. As soon as we take something out like that, we wow. incinerate it. So it was never proven. And we could never find the guy again. He don't, he'd only been in touch with my publicist by email. And his email, had basically, there was no answer. Basically, for all intents and purposes, disappeared. And in any case, it didn't matter because I had no evidence at all. So you, there's no proof. But I have no doubt that I was poisoned. 
And, you know, it concerned me. And while I was still in my hospital bed, I called a friend who had been what we call a jackal, one of the guys that's involved in assassinating presidents or uh, overthrowing them in a coup. This guy was a professional. He'd come out of, you know, very high secret service agencies and, and special forces. And he was a guy I practiced martial arts with. That's how I knew him, because he belonged to the same school that I did. Incredible martial artist. <laughs> and I called him and, and I said, you know, I, I think it was poison. He said, yeah, I think you were too. And I said, well, uh, what do you think? Was it the CIA? The Who did this? And he said, well, no. I said, if it was one of the alphabet agencies. Alphabet I, agencies. <laughs> you wouldn't be alive to talk to me now. And he said, besides that, they know better. The book's out. They don't, they don't want you mm. to die. It, that's just going to make you a martyr. That could that would sell books. Sell more books, it, right? It is selling books. In fact, even the fact that this happened was selling a lot of books, right? Then people get, really got interested once the word got out. And so I said, "Well, who do you think it was?" And he said, "I, I, I suspect it was a fanatic who either really hated what you did, or hated the fact that you exposed what you did." And I said, "Well, should I and my daughter and and." and be concerned at this point. And he said, I don't think so. Cause usually people like that are basically pretty cowardly and they're not going to try again. And he probably in any case figures that he, he scared you enough that he's, he's accomplished his, whatever he wanted to accomplish. And he said, they're kind of like suicides. You know, if you can stop them before they jump, they're probably not going to, they're probably not going to try again, at least not for a long time. So, so that's, that's the story behind that, but it, it certainly had a, <laughs> had an impact and it made me really, really, you know, I, in a way, it it reinvigorated me to keep doing what I was doing. Um, it was an odd sort of thing that in the in the end, it 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 inspired me um, to want to keep going. That was an incredible story. I'm so glad you made it full recovery. Um, yeah, me too. Oh, and he, oh, here's a, here's a good one. So the. Uh, uh, the, the, the doctor that I was with, gastroenterologist, that's the word I'm trying to go. The, gastro, the gastroenterologist, who was very, he happened to be Pavarotti's gastroenterologist. Pavarotti would fly from, from Italy. to Probably had to see him a lot. <laughs> he was good. He had a lot of celebrities. And he, uh, two weeks after the operation, I'm, I'm finally getting ready to leave New York and fly back to where I lived, which was Florida at the time. My last visit to him, he said, you know, I should be telling you that you are now a carnivore, uh, that uh, omnivores have middle-sized stomachs, herbivores have large nut stomachs and large intestines, uh, and, car and carnivores have small ones. So I've just taken you from being a, an, an, an omnivore to being a carnivore. And I should be telling you, don't eat fruits and vegetables and roughage and so forth. Um, but he said, you know, I read your book, Shapeshifting, while you were in the hospital. And I think if you practice what you, what you teach in that book, you can shapeshift. You, when you came in here, you had seven feet of large intestine. I took five. And you had about 20, close to 25 feet of small intestine, of which the last five feet don't serve any, didn't serve any function except to connect to the large intestine. I think you can shapeshift that five feet into large intestine and live a normal life. Well, Timothy, I did it. Uh, not only do I not, did I, did I, did I not, you know, become a carnivore, I am now a vegetarian. Uh, the woman I live with, <laughs> and during COVID, we haven't been going to restaurants, so, I, and I love it, you know, I probably doubt if I'll ever eat meat again. And so it's totally 
gone against it, that that sort of theory, uh, which has been a fun aspect of this whole thing, the shape-shifting. That's beautiful. I'm going to turn this over to Joel here in a minute. I need to use the restroom because I had a little too much matcha tea, but I wanted to give you a quick shout-out. I know you're walking around the neighborhood jogging and stuff, but there's a new vegetarian food truck down by Island Fitness between there and uh, City Council office. So you should oh, check it out. Good. Smoothies, juices, all vegetarian fare. Good to know. I'll be I back can. in just a second. Continue. John, to- actually, I wanted to – the shape-shifting sort of brings me into something I, I, I've always been fascinated about in terms of some of, some of the stuff that – I guess the, the best way to frame this is I think so often when people come to a raising of consciousness and they decide they want to be part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem – so much of what paralyzes us is everything seems so big and we uh, we we see ourselves as individuals and therefore we see ourselves as as incredibly small and so the the question really starts becoming in terms of changing our perceptions in terms of of touching those jaguars and and trying to dream new dreams dream different dreams <clears throat> what do we do first What's the, what's the first step? If the journey of a thousand miles starts with the, the single step, what should that single step be? And listening to you talk about about the shape shifting and the shamanism, I, I'm reminded of of something uh, Eckhart Tolle once said, which is, if if I primarily perceive myself as a physical entity, if I see myself as basically as as this as meat and dirt and water, then of course the meat and dirt and water that I am is going to be really important to me. What color it is, what race I am, where it lives, what nationality it's part of. But if I can get past that and begin to see that I am in fact not this, this is the house that's something that is much bigger and much larger and much more common is then the color of it, the race of it, the nationality of it, stops being as important to me and those those other problems and those other divisions go to the side so when you talk to people and people ask you so john what's step one what's the first perception i have to change what's the first dream new dream i have to dream if i'm going to get started on this what what do you tell them where do we begin because for a lot of people the beginning is the hardest part well, I would say, so in, in touching the Jaguar, I offer a, a daily practice. So you can do it once a week. It doesn't have to be every day. It's, it takes about a little less than 10 minutes. But it's based on answering five questions. And I think this will answer your question, Joel. So it's, it's not just the first, but the several steps. But let me run. I'll run through those. Is that okay? Do we have? Yeah, time? please. Please. This is your time. Yeah. So, so the first question is, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the most satisfaction? So there's no general answer to your question. Every one of us is different. So I would answer that question by saying, I want to write. I love to write. I want to write for the rest of my life. I have a good friend who's a carpenter. He'd say, I want to work with my hands in wood. Almost the opposite end of the spectrum from a writer, you know. And then the second question is, uh, how can I do this in a way that will help other people? Because we're all happy when we help other people. It can be one other person or it could be the whole world. So as a writer, I would say, well, I want, I want to write about 
like the subtitle of Touching the Jaguar, transforming fear into action to save, to, 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 to change your life and the world. I want to help people change their lives in the world. My carpenter friend would say, I want to use sustainable materials to make it a better world. And this, the third question is, what's holding you back? What are the, what's the Jaguar standing there telling you, you can't do this? <laughs> what's the blockage? And for a writer, it might be, well, I just don't have enough time to write. I know I got to write every day, but I don't have time. And for my friend, the carpenter, it might be, well, people don't want to uh, pay more uh, to uh, use sustainable materials. I can't get them to do that. They don't want to do that. And so the fourth question is, well, when you touch that Jaguar, how does it change your perception? So for a writer, I'd say, well, wait, I could get up half an hour earlier every morning and write, or I could watch an hour less of television three nights a week and have time to write and change that perception. For my carpenter friend, the Jaguar says to him, hey, look, tell your clients, they're not, the money they're spending is not a cost, it's an investment. They're investing in the future for themselves and their children by using sustainable materials change that perception from cost to investment. And the fifth question is, what are the actions I have to take? So for the writer, it's, I gotta, I gotta get up half an hour earlier, I gotta take an hour off from television and I gotta write. Because if I don't write, I'm not gonna get anything written. And for my carpenter friend, it's getting out there working with his hands in the wood and telling people, and he doesn't have to be eloquent, he doesn't have to write a book about it, but saying, hey, look, kids, I built that cabinet for your you and your parents, right? Built this house for you and your parents using sustainable materials because it's an investment in your future, just as just like an education or many other things would be. So if we all go through those, answering those five questions, and then every day we, we look at how we put them into practice, and we'll find that the three last questions and answers change frequently. And each time they change. So all right, all right, now I've decided I've got the time, I'm, I've created the time, but the next question is, so what am I going to write about? And then once I figure that out, the next question is, what's the first sentence I'm going to write? And, and so on. And so, but each time we, we answer one of these, these last three questions, we, we resolve those three questions of, of what happens when I touch the Jaguar, you know, and, and what are the actions? How does it change my perception? And what, what's the blockages holding me back? What happens when I touch them? And what actions do I take? Those three questions. Each time we, we resolve that, the one, that those we rise to a higher level of consciousness and bring ourselves closer to that, realizing that satisfaction in our lives. So again, question one, and this is in the book, uh, Touching the Jaguar, um, what do I most wanna do for the rest of my life? How will that help others? Two, three, what's holding me back? What's the Jaguars I gotta touch? Four, when I touch that Jaguar, when I confront that, that fear, uh, how does it change my perception? And five, what actions do I take every day? And it doesn't matter whether you're a carpenter or a teacher or a plumber or a writer or a parent or whatever you are, um, th those questions are very, very pertinent and, and they're very, very powerful and effective. You met the Dalai Lama. What was that experience like? <laughs> it was pretty odd that I had a group of about 30 people, 33 people that I was taking to Ladakh, which used to be a part of Tibet, part of, which was part of Tibet, but unlike what we think of Tibet today, it wasn't taken over by the Chinese. It's an Indian protectorate north of India. And I've taken people there and the Dalai Lama can still go there. And he was there at the time we were there giving talks and, and we, we tried to arrange a meeting 
private meeting with him, but it, it didn't work out. On our last morning, as we were sitting in the Leh Ladakh airport, getting ready to fly to Jammu, India, early in the morning, and the Dalai Lama comes in with his entourage, and he's carrying my book, Shapeshifting, under his arm. Get out. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, we somebody in our group had sent it to him to try to entice him to meet with our group, so he had it. And anyway, to make a long story short, I get invited to sit next to him at the front seat of the airplane. So for that whole flight, I'm sitting next to him, and we're having a magnificent conversation. He's very funny and very, very, very talkative. Is, is that a cat or a dog? What do we get going across there, Joel? Uh, that's my cat, Fawn. Sorry, she she wishes to be part of the conversation. Apparently. Oh, we get two cats in the suit. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and so, anyway, at the end of the flight, um, the Dalai Lama calls over his secretary and says, "Hey, I want you to." you know, arrange for these this guy and his group of 33 people to come to my house in two days and spend the afternoon in my living room with me chatting. And we did. And it was an, an amazing experience. He's, you know, he's a very, very charismatic, funny, intelligent guy. And one of the most important things I think about the Dalai Lama is that he epitomizes the, as, as he, he at one point said, you know, prayer is important. Somebody asked him about praying for peace. He said, pray for peace, but if that's all you do, if you walk away from praying for peace and you say, I've done my job, it's a waste of time and probably counterproductive. It, pray for peace, meditate, visualize, dream of, of peace or whatever, but also you got to take daily actions to make it happen. And I think he epitomizes that beautifully. You know, he meditates every every day for several hours. And he's also traveling around the world all the time and writing hundreds of books. <laughs> he does both. And, I, and it was wonderful meeting with him and hearing that and he, he you know nothing up to many questions from our people wow i love that you, you both get two kitties here this one didn't see yours though and yours didn't see mine it's mine I, I don't think i don't think i don't think she's mine i think i'm hers that's how it works you we, we get accepted we don't yeah that's, that's yeah, well, not only we get accepted but we get to provide them with all the food and all the comforts and yes. everything else yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they're pretty smart that's where the term fat cat comes from, right? Joel, you got anything else there for John? I, I think we have to we have to let this fella go. As much as I could talk to him for another hour, easy. Uh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is maybe maybe oh, we, maybe, yeah. So yeah, maybe you can talk yeah, him into I, coming I, back because yeah, that that Yeah, I'd love to talk about the 14 documentary films that you've been in and go down the list of every book you wrote and uh chew the fat on oh what your favorite well, restaurants next, and coffee places are around the island. And the next book, which, uh, which I'm well into now, I'm probably three quarters of the way through. It's about the new Silk Road and the competition between China and the United States. And basically between the West and the East as, as the power base seems to be shifting from West to East. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time in China and in Central Asia and, and Russia and all over. And, so it's, I'm really, really enjoying writing this book. It's based on personal experiences again, as well as lots of research. So yeah, I'd love to, let's continue this conversation. And once, the, once we get beyond this virus, let's all get together in person. <sighs> Wouldn't that yeah, be? Yeah, for sure. Let's hit a hike, Gasm Lake or something. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going out there later today, I hope. But it gets dark so darn early here. Yeah. It does <laughs> now, yeah. It's another reason so we got to stay away from depression. <laughs> I get another interview coming up at 145, and then I'm hoping to, after that, go out for a hike, jog. All right, guys. 
It's been really fun. Yes, I fun. Really Thank you so much for your time, sir. Namaste, yes. sir. Namaste. Bye and as, during COVID times, we said namaste six feet away. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in touch. Let's do it again. We'll All do. Right. You've been listening to John Perkins. Thank you so much for your time, John. Right. Hey, Podcast Phil, want your spoken word to be heard? We are currently seeking submissions for spoken word and poetry. Send your recorded words to tinytim at thebystanderpodcast.com. My mom and sister talk to me about suicide like people talk about the weather. I try not to let it sink in, instead lift them up because birds of a feather flock together. But by distancing myself, do I claim that I'm better? Am I better just because my wallet is guest leather? Or because my girl's bag is coach? We live in Bellevue. She from the middle class. Ain't never seen a cockroach. I remember sleeping with roaches. I try to run from these memories, fall asleep, and wake up to an ashtray full of roaches. Being black in America, the same as Africa, except white people, the poachers. Saying we hood. Y'all copy our clothes, mannerisms, and slang. But when y'all do it, it's all good. Like my mama's favorite drug is white, so it's pure. AIDS and cancer been around how long, and we still ain't got no cure? I'm tired of Jewish pimps controlling from behind the scenes. Go to school, work hard, maybe make an Ivy League. That higher education, it'll set you free. Psych sell your soul and entire life for a corporate destiny. Then lie to yourself and play like it was meant to be. Baking soda, water, shit, you know the recipe. My mentor says, why cook crack? Just cause you're half black? Go to school, educate yourself, memorize those useless facts. Maybe you can get your life back on track. Like since I didn't go to college at 18, I'm derailed. Fuck doing the rest of my life, right? I pre-failed. I didn't follow the plan. Do you have a brain, son? Do you need a CAT scan? Nah, I don't. Go to college to start with debt. Nah, I won't. Call it an investment in yourself. Well, maybe for white people. I don't want to hear those excuses. We all get opportunity equal. <laughs> that bullshit is so far from the truth. I remember being eight when a white man walked up to our booth. He looked at my mom, sister, and I and said, How dare you make these mixed breed kids? I hope you all end up dead. And I remember the look on my mom's face. Like, don't you talk about my babies. They are nobody's disgrace. I'm proud of my children in their beautiful color. And even though she an alcoholic, that's why I love my mother. She looked that man dead in his eyes and she said she'd do anything for her children. She'd die. Outside looking in, my mom is damaged goods. But I love her to death just like any child would. And with the current state of our society, I wish more than ever for my mother's sobriety. We need spiritual healing, not any more rioting. We need unity, peace, and love. Strong faith that blessings are coming down from above. Amen.